the prophet Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen? This is our proclamation here, church family, on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. Welcome to Windsor Road Christian Church, both in person and online. It is a joy to worship together with God's people, people that I love and uh, people that we're going to be spending all eternity with in heaven. We get a taste of that now. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Randy, and I'm just privileged to be the senior minister here at the church. And if um, you're feeling new here, very quickly, we want you to be at home here uh, in the Lord's house. And I'm going to be in a place uh, after services called the Fireside Room. And it's just a hospitality uh, area that we have. And it would just be my privilege to have a few moments of your time and to pray together, both myself, my wife, Sarah, our staff, elders will be there. And we just want you to feel very, very welcome here uh, here at church this morning. Um, I'm going to offer a prayer, and then we're going to have the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to move into the teaching time of our worship service. Father God in heaven, there is no one like you, Lord. You are holy. You are righteous. You are just. You are loving. And you alone are worthy of all the praise and glory and honor. And we've come here for you to see you, to hear you. And we need you, Lord. We need you more than life itself. For you, Lord God, are our life. We want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And it breaks our hearts when your will is not done on earth. And so this morning, Father, we come to you lamenting those moments in time when your will is not followed. We come to you lamenting loss of life. And particularly, Lord, we lament this weekend the loss of life in Buffalo, New York. We lament over the idolatry of racism that devalues the image-bearing glory that you have ordained for us. Lord, how long will you tolerate such a defiance of your rule? It is not right that evildoers prosper. God, rid the earth of injustice. Please do not stand far off. Please do not hide yourself. Arise, O Lord, and lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. And Lord Jesus, we confess our shortcomings. Forgive us when our thoughts and words do not align with your truth. Forgive us for our failure to love others as you would have us. Absolve us of our indifference. Please use our church as an embassy of heaven. Holy Spirit, please continue to fill us with yourself so that we would represent the kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Please replace our anger with peace. Please renew our hurry with calm. Please quench our thirsty souls with, your, with the life-giving spring of your word. And help us live so that others will see that you, God, are gracious. We cannot do this alone. We plead your help. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, amen, amen, amen. So we are in a teaching series on the body, the body. And by that, I don't mean metaphorically the church as the body of Christ. That's another sermon series. I'm talking about your body, your human body. And today we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture. I'm going to read just one for our Scripture reading. It's Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want to put a tag on this message. Your unique body for his great glory. Would you say that with me? Your unique body for his great glory. One more time. Your unique body for his great glory. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. So what does the Bible teach about human embodiment? Human embodiment. Well, if you've been with us here on our series, you've been learning that you know, God created you. You are a created human being. You have a body. You are a body. God did not create your spirit and then stuff you into any old skin container. We're not passengers riding around in skin-tight race cars. We have bodies. We are bodies. Genesis 2.10 says that we've been created from the dust of the ground. And then God breathed into us. And we became living creatures. So God took the dust of the ground. Then breathed into that dust of the ground. And as a result, living creatures. And that means that God is our respirator. If God withdraws, we die. Amen? And that's why Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in him. And Paul, get this, he's, wow, he's Paul. 
He's not even quoting the Old Testament when he says what I'm about to tell you, he said. He's quoting one of the Greek philosophers. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. So we've been learning that God created our bodies. And he created your, he created your body right down to the cells in your eyeballs. If you can see me in person or online, it's because of the 107 million cells that are stuffed into each eyeball. That's why my brain feels so crowded. A hundred million of those cells are called uh, rods, and they help you see at night. And those rods are not too sensitive to color, which is why you see in grayscale. And yet those rods in a healthy eye can detect a small candle flame on a clear night 30 miles away. About six or seven million of those cells are called cones. And those cones help you see color and sharpness in the day. And so because of these cone cells, your eye can distinguish literally millions of different shades of color. Do you know that? A single rod or a single cone can send a message to your brain to help you feel the splendor of the Grand Canyon at sunrise. It can allow you to detect the slightest change of an expression on your face. And it can also help you dodge a chunk of shredded tire going 70 miles per hour on the interstate. Your eyeball can do that. It's because of those 107 million cells stuck in each eye. Thanks be to God. No wonder Charles Darwin once said, to suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. I agree with Mr. Darwin on that one. You have a created body. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And this morning, I want us to think about your unique body, the uniqueness of the body God created for you. And so here's the big idea coming our way. God made you a unique individual body with individual, excuse me, with unique traits at a unique point in time for his unique glory. God made you a unique individual body with unique traits at a unique point in time for his unique glory. Glory. Your uniqueness is for God's greatness. That's where we're going today. Now I'm thinking about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You hear echoes of uniqueness there. Uniqueness for God's greatness. Jeremiah 1, 5. 
Another example of this would be in the book of Esther. Esther, this Hebrew woman of fierce beauty in the Persian Empire who was put at a unique point in time and God used her uniqueness to save the Hebrew people from genocide. Her relative Mordecai challenged her to put her uniqueness to the service of God for the good of others. Mordecai said, Esther 3 verse 14, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you hear echoes of uniqueness there? Your uniqueness for his greatness. God made you a unique individual body with unique traits at a unique point in time for his unique glory. That's the big idea. Now let's go three directions in that. Well, one direction, three milestones here. All right. First of all, let's ask the question, what? what okay, what do you mean by uniqueness? Let's get specific on that. I want to answer that question. I want to define uniqueness here. And then secondly, I want to answer the question, which I hope in about seven minutes you'll be asking, so what? So what? And you know the third question, now what? What, so what, now what? What what do you mean by uniqueness? And what's the significance of that? And then now what? And in the now what section, we're going to examine a case study of someone whose uniqueness was put to God's greatness. Well, let's get to work. What? What do we mean when we say that we are uniquely, individually made by God? Here is what we mean. We mean that God is not a widget manufacturer. That's what we mean. We mean that you are not random, church family. You are not happenstance. You are not a product of chance. You're not the result of an impersonal manufacturing production line. God does not mass produce copies of sameness. That's what we mean. When Psalm 139 verse 13 says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The psalmist is implying, and not just implying, stating God's personal involvement in the fashioning of your life. Your uniqueness stems from God's nearness. And this fact goes way beyond the 107 million cells stuffed into each eyeball. My uniqueness extends to my ethnicity, my family heritage, my place of birth, my life in a unique time of history, my current life context. You put it all together and it sounds something like this. My name is Randall Allen Boltinghouse. I am male. I am married. I'm a father, husband. I'm a grandfather. I've been placed on earth in the late 20th, early 21st century. I was born at St. John's Hospital in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thus, I grew up in the Southwest, and I migrated to Midwestern culture, a culture known for friendliness, hard work, and aversion to change. 
And for the last 40 years of my life, I've been involved in a vocation called local church ministry. And that requires a certain level of of spiritual skills and people skills and communication skills and writing skills and learning skills and organizational leadership skills. My denominational background in Christianity spans from from Baptist to Methodist to Episcopal to non-denominational Christian church. My higher education experiences include Christian Church Seminary as well as Evangelical Free Church Seminary and Southern Baptist Seminaries. So you see, so my uniqueness, are you thinking about your uniqueness now while I'm talking? I hope so. Because your your uniqueness or, here's another word, particularity, particularity, your uniqueness is a composite of of gender and ethnicity and place of birth and place of upbringings and nationality and, and education and health and sickness and all in a particular point in history. And, and every one of those spaces involves a culture that includes traits like food and clothing and the arts and entertainment and traditions. And, and I've grown up in a nation that is a nearly 250-year-old democratic republic and I've had certain opportunities and privileges because of all of those traits and characteristics, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uniqueness. And if you want to see where this might show up in the Bible, I offer to you Acts chapter 21, verse 39. In Acts 21, 39, when the apostle Paul was arrested, the officer in charge wanted his ID. And Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. There. So Paul's talking about his Hebrew uh, ethnicity. He he is male. He grew up in Tarsus, which was a place in Cilicia, in Asia Minor, in the Roman Empire. He happened to be a citizen. Uh, Tarsus, there was a a well-known university there. All of those came together And Paul was this composite of unique traits. Think about Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those speak to particularities or uniquenesses of Jesus. There you have it. Your uniqueness is a mosaic of identities and traits provided to you by God for his good purpose. God made you a unique individual body with unique traits at a unique point in time for his unique glory. That's the what. Amen. Now, I'm hoping you're wondering, so what, Pastor? I'm so glad you asked. See, this week across the nation, thousands of graduates will be celebrating commencement. I went to one a week from Saturday. Let me show you. My wife, Sarah, received her, yeah. She received her master's degree at Lincoln Christian University a week ago, Saturday. And I've got a thousand pictures of that. And it's our new form of church discipline. So, you know, I'll show you pictures of her graduation until you repent. It's that simple. All right. 
But all across the country, people will be, she's wearing a mask, so I don't know if she's approving or disapproving. We'll find out later, okay? (laughs) We're going to be hearing addresses that celebrate uniqueness and individual giftedness. Now, I've learned that people tend to fall into one of two ditches when we think about unique and amazing bodies here. On the one hand, one ditch is, you know, we hear that all of us are unique. Okay, well, if all of us are unique, then what does that mean to be unique? One cynic said, you are unique, just like everybody else. Well, okay, that's a little snarky, I know. But I mean, but yet, yet, it's, it's, it raises a question. How can my teaspoon of uniqueness matter in a sea of unique humanity? So it's easy to feel lost and lonely, even in a crowd. That's one ditch we fall into. We, we underestimate our uniqueness. And then on the other hand, another ditch is overestimating our uniqueness. We are, we, we are so aware of our uniqueness that we grow arrogant. We elevate, we idolize particular traits. Some of those traits that I described earlier. And that leads to pride. I'm the only one who's unique and no one else has what I have and it's good for me and not so good for you. I'm, I'm, I'm unique and all of you other 8 billion people better get on board. Underestimating, overestimating. But Romans chapter 12 verse 3 teaches us, For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So so what does sober judgment of our uniqueness look like? Here it is. Paul says, think this way. Acknowledge and praise God for the various ways he has made you a unique individual. You are a unique person with unique gifts for a unique purpose at a unique point in time for God's good purposes. God wants your uniqueness, back to the big idea, to display his greatness. That is sober thinking. The, listen, the purpose of being an image bearer is to spread God's glory. We bear his image to spread his glory. We are image bearers created to be glory spreaders. One pastor scholar said that if a king made 8 billion statues of himself, and then strategically put them throughout the earth, what would you conclude about that king? That he wants to be known. Especially when that king is your respirator and your life giver. And thus our scripture in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship. You see that word workmanship there in Ephesians 2, 10? Now, if you took my worldview class last fall, you'd remember, only six months later, that the word workmanship is from the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem. That's right. You're God's poem. 
meaning there's no one like you. You're one of a kind. This is, listen, this is not feel-good preaching. This is gospel truth. And the things you like about yourself or the things you don't like about yourself, and your personality, your body type, your intellectual abilities, your intellectual limitations, the experiences you possess, your educational experiences, your family experiences, your vocational experiences, your painful experiences. God is using the, the mosaic of these traits to create the unique, spectacular, particular poem of God that is you. And why? In order to display him. Now, when humans write poetry, it's a beautiful product of the imagination on paper. But when God writes poetry, oh, yeah, living creatures come to life. And the unique poem which is your unique life, has a unique purpose. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Somehow, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he is stitching together all that is you for his purposes. Your uniqueness is for his greatness. That's the that's the so what, okay? Well, let's get to the now what. What, what. what does uniqueness for God's greatness look like in real life? Well, what I'd like to do in the rest of our time is just to give you a case study of God's glory displayed in huh, a particular individual's Ordinary uniqueness. And for that, we look in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 10. Our scripture concerns a man by the name of Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verse 10 says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. There's another passage in the book of Acts that also refers to Ananias. Acts 22, verse 12. A devout man, according to the law of Moses, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So there were three individuals named Ananias in the book of Acts. And, and, and this is the Ananias you want to follow. Okay? Ananias was a godly Christian who lived in Damascus. And, and again, if you're just observing Acts chapter 9, verse 10, you see unique traits about him. You can observe he's a Christian, he's Hebrew, he's a devout man of God, he's well spoken of by the Hebrew community there in Damascus. And this, this everyday, ordinary man of God the Lord used Ananias' unique life in his unique location at a unique point in time for God's unique purposes. So, so Ananias had been living with consistent rhythms. He had a consistent life, loved by the people that he you know, did life with. And within this rhythm of ordinary uniqueness, the Lord came to Ananias in a vision. 
And that's what we read here in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Literally, behold, I, Lord. Idu, I, me, Kyrie. Behold, I, Lord, here I am. Ananias, rise and go to Straight Street. Here I am, Lord. When you get to Straight Street, find a house owned by Judas. Here I am, Lord. When you get to that house, you're going to find someone praying. Yes, here I am, Lord. I want you to put your hands on him, Ananias. Yes, here I am, Lord. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Come again? You heard me. You heard me. Lay your hands on him and heal him and restore his sight. And then verse 13 says, this is so great because Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere creator of the universe to which Ananias says, Lord, are you aware? Are you aware? (laughs) Are you aware of the evil this man has done against your holy ones in Jerusalem? And did you know Did you know that he's come to Damascus with the power of arrest to those who call your name? Oh, are you saying you want me to pray for and heal the very man who has come here to arrest me? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. You heard me correctly. Ananias, you can go for I will show. You can go, for I will show. Verse 15, but the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show. You can go, for I will show. Ananias, Ananias is wondering, how am I going to be able to show him what he's supposed to do? How is he going to believe me and how am I going to make Ananias, you don't have to show him a thing. I'll show him. You just need to hand him his orders. That's all you need to do. You can risk entering the unknown with all of the uniqueness that I've put into your ordinariness through all these years, because I'm going to be with you. Where God has plowed, you must sow. Ananias, even as we speak, Saul is having a vision of his own right now. So Ananias is having a vision, and in that vision, the Lord is telling Ananias that Saul is having a vision. And right, so it's a double vision. It's a vision and a vision. These movies like Inception, I think they stole straight from the book of Acts. <laughs> While the Lord is communicating to Ananias in a vision, the Lord is also communicating to Saul in a vision. So the one who is preparing Ananias to speak is also preparing Saul to listen. Isn't that beautiful? Saul is having a vision of the Lord telling Ananias in a vision to come to him to lay hands on him. You see, Saul's worldview has been absolutely pulverized. 
And he has no idea what he's supposed to do right now. What do I do with my life? He's been climbing the ladder of success, and he gets up to the top rung, and he realizes he's on the wrong ladder. And his last word that he received from the king of the universe was, go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. Well, Ananias, you're my voice. You're going to tell Saul of Tarsus what his next three decades are going to be like. So, get this, Ananias will be the apostle to the apostle Paul. Ananias, you may safely go to Saul, for I will show him what he will suffer for my name. So, so you see, Ananias and Saul, they need one another to complete the picture of their visions. Saul needs to know his life purpose. And Ananias needs to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of all. And he needs to see and experience with his body that Jesus can, in fact, change lives. You are not a lost cause. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit who filled the disciples within the Holy Land of Israel is the same Holy Spirit who will fill Saul of Tarsus in the city of Damascus outside Israel. Damascus was known as a haven for heretics. Yet even there, the Holy Spirit of Christ will not be impeded. And Acts chapter 9 verse 17 says that Ananias came to the house and you, whatever he expected to see, well, what he saw when he walked through that door was a weakened, fasting, praying, three days without food and water, blind man. Saul was so lost, he had to be led into town by the hand. And the very next voice that Saul heard was the voice that said, Brother, Brother Saul. And, and he felt the presence of a human body standing next to him. And then he felt hands on his shoulders. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, verse 17, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. So, so, so it's like Saul's eyes had been sealed shut like by scales. It's a word that uh, can also describe the, the coat of an onion or the shell of an egg. Uh, Ananias laid hands on Saul and this scab-like scaly coating encasing fell. And Saul could see. And the first face Saul saw after he had heard from Christ and seen Christ was the face of Ananias. 
this chosen ambassador of the king. And then, Ambassador Ananias delivered the king's orders. And you can read this in Acts 22, 14, and 15. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. There it is. That's your life now. King Jesus has conscripted you for his service for the rest of your life. And so the scripture then says, and now why do you wait? Acts 22. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When the king issues his orders, there are no deferred deployments. The Bible says in Acts 9, 18 and 19, then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Taking food, so that means table fellowship. So the, the man Ananias thought would arrest him ended up becoming his brother in Christ and they had supper together. And we never hear of Ananias again. All we know about him is in Acts chapter 9 and Acts 22. And in Acts 22, it's, that's Paul's own recollection in his own personal testimony. But what we know is sufficient. It's sufficient to know that he was a believer. It's sufficient to know that he knew how to listen to the voice of Jesus. It's sufficient to know that he was devout and consistent. All of, see, all of these traits that made up his uniqueness in the ordinary prepared him for that one extraordinary day when God used him to deliver a very important message. And though Ananias and Saul were very different and they had different commissions... Both learn something about God. And it's what we can learn about God. And it has to do with Ananias' name. Do you know what Ananias' name means? It means Yahweh is gracious. Ananias learned that God's graciousness extended to someone like Saul. God, God used the ordinary, everyday uniqueness of Ananias to launch the career of Christianity's most influential apostle. And Ananias' obedience in the ordinariness of his uniqueness eventuated by the power of God a great harvest for the kingdom of God. There it is. There it is. Small acts of of ordinary uniqueness, grounded in the word of God, even when they appear contrary to reason, can be of such great significance and importance. Our perspective is so small. God's perspective is so wide. It takes in all of history. So trust him. Rely on him. He will not defraud us, church. Your responsibility and mine is to live in the reality of Ananias' three words, Behold, I, Lord. There it is. 
What would our church look like if our hearts were in such a state? What if we had a congregation of Ananiases? Behold, I, Lord, send me anywhere to anyone with any message at any time. Use my life, Lord, I'm yours. Are, are we able to free ourselves from the reservations that keep us from the people that God wants us to see? Are we willing to put our God-given uniqueness to the service of God's greatness? Your uniqueness is meant to mirror God's greatness. It is not meant so that others can say, wow, you're unique, period. No, it's so that others will say, wow, you're unique. God is great. And you do not have the luxury of picking and choosing the object of your labor. Especially when God has put that person in your way. You are to simply tell that person of Jesus and his love. And the Lord who prepares you to speak has prepared that person to hear. And we have no no record of their ever meeting again. Ananias appeared, he did his job, and then disappeared from the pages of Scripture. Not all of us are Paul. Out front, on stage, writing the Bible. But all of us can be Ananias. So if you're looking for a mission statement, I take it from a pro, Ananias. Behold, I, Lord. The poet wrote, in the shop of a blacksmith, there are three types of tools. There are tools on the junk pile, outdated, broken, dull, rusty. They sit in a cobwebbed corner, useless to their master, oblivious to their calling. Then there are tools on the anvil, melted down, molten hot, moldable, changeable. They lie on the anvil, being shaped by their master, accepting their calling. Then there are tools of usefulness, sharpened, primed, defined, mobile. They lie ready in the blacksmith's tool chest, available to their master, fulfilling their calling. Some people lie useless. Lives broken, talents wasting, fires quenched, dreams dashed. They're tossed in with a scrap iron in desperate need of repair with no notion of purpose, but others lie on the anvil, Hearts open, hungry to change, wounds healing, visions clearing. They welcome the painful pounding of the blacksmith's hammer, longing to be rebuilt, begging to be called. And others lie in the master's hand, well-tuned, uncompromising, polished, Productive. They respond to their master's forearm, demanding nothing, surrendering all. We are all somewhere 
in the blacksmith shop. Amen.